We have been in a sermon series titled, Our Great Salvation, How Jesus Saves Us from Beginning to End, and how it's not just a one-time experience. I, I was saved when I was seven years old, um, but that's not the end, that it's a continual process, that all throughout our life that we are continually being saved. And for me, um, and Victor talked about this a lot last week, but I was saved at seven, I am being saved today, and at some point, when the Lord returns, or I die, whichever comes first, I am completely saved. And so that follows for all of our lives, because it's not just a one-time moment, one-time thing, it's a continual process throughout our entire life. And and in the last couple weeks, um, we see Jared in the first week talked about salvation as a rescue mission. That Jesus came to rescue us from everything that we had got ourselves into. And the separation from the Father and all of those things. And he he talked about how on the cross, he rescued us from hell, from damnation, from, uh, from everything that he, that we lost in the garden. And he spent a lot of time in Genesis chapter 3. And then Victor last week talked about salvation as the cancellation of a debt. How we have taken from God, we owed a debt, and that all throughout the Old Testament, that there were animal sacrifices that basically made the minimum payment on the interest of a loan that we could not repay. But through Jesus, the cancellation of that debt came And restored us and put us in right standing with God. And today, we're going to talk about um, salvation as victory. That is what we're going to talk about today. And so I'm excited about it. But just like the last couple weeks, it's hard to understand where we are without understanding where we came from. And Jared and Vic both talked a lot about what happened in the garden. So We're going to go back there again. By the time this sermon series is over, you guys should be very well versed in Genesis chapter 3. But at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And can we all agree on that? Sam agrees. All right. So 17 of you agree with that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Since he created it, he gets to make the decisions. He is the authority in all things. He is the one who is the author of it all. So as he creates, he creates man and woman in his image. And Adam and Eve, and I don't know the time frame. Nobody knows the time frame. I don't know how long it took them to sin. I don't know if it was 27 minutes or 50 years. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that before the fall of man, Adam and Eve just hung out with God. On a regular basis. It wasn't anything for them to just hang out. They would commune with God. They would talk with God. They would, I'm sure they would laugh with God. Because God got to have some great jokes. And so he would just move in his life. And they would just move and dwell in his being. And he would just hang out. In perfection. Total paradise. Total perfection. God was everything. Before Eve, it's just Adam and God that he talks to. 
He's dad. He's friend. He's all these things in perfection. And a lot of you know the story. In chapter 3, it talks about how the serpent comes and he deceives Eve and she takes to the fruit. And women have never made a decision about a restaurant since then. 6,000 years of, I'm not going to tell where we're going to eat. But Adam was there with her. They took the fruit. And sin has entered the world. And Adam decides to hide from God. Now, Adam knows God. They have an incredible relationship. But in this moment, he hears God walking in the garden, and he hides. Now, Adam's not stupid. He is the original, created fully in the image of God. He knows who he is. He understands that he is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful. Yet, he still hides. In the worst game of hide-and-seek in human history, Adam chooses to hide from God. Now, why does he hide? It doesn't make any sense. But here's what I think. When we're in sin, we tend to forget the character of God. Think about that in your own life. Whenever you screw up, let those little voices pop in and you forget how good he is and you forget how gracious he is and how merciful he is and how much he loves you and desires to have a relationship with you, but when we're blinded by sin, we start doing stupid things. And we justify our own sin, and we do things and forget who God is. And Adam, in that moment, forgets who God is. And God, who is well aware of where Adam is, calls out to him and says, where are you? God was not confused about where Adam was. This was giving Adam a chance to respond. And Adam, in a moment of clarity, says, here I am. I hid. He hid for two reasons. Does anybody besides Sam know the two reasons that he hid? Y'all can talk to me. I'm not Victor. It's okay. Shame, guilt, and he was afraid. So there were two things. Adam says, I hid because I was afraid, and I was naked. Adam had never been afraid of God before. They hung out. They were friends. He had never been afraid. And I find it interesting 
that over the course of the next 4,000 years of recorded scriptural history, God over and over and over again says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Every time he pops in, he says, fear not or do not be afraid because he's trying to restore what was lost. And he says, I hid because I was naked. But a couple verses up there, it says, as soon as they ate the fruit, they felt shame in their nakedness. So another way to translate that is that he felt ashamed and he was afraid. With the sin brought defeat, death, fear, and shame. And it's just a kind of an interesting side note. I don't really know if it has to do with anything, but I found it fascinating, so I thought you might as well. After the, after the sin, after the fall, God kind of lays out some curses. You remember that? Curses the woman and says, you're going to have some painful childbirth from here on out. And he tells the man, guess what? You get to work and break your back to provide for your food. And he also curses the serpent. And this is where we get the first prophecy of Christ. That he says, you're the enmity between you and the woman. You're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to strike his, his heel, the seed of the woman. You're going to strike his heel. He's going to crush your head. It's our first prophecy of the Messiah. But it never dawned on me until this week that while he's handing out the curses, if you want to call it that, he's talking to Adam and Eve, and if he's cursing Satan and the serpent, he's got to be there too. You see, I always had this vision in my head of like little cartoon things, like the angel and the devil, or the angel, and, yeah, the angel and the demon, they're both trying to convince you what to do, and then once you sin, he's like, ha ha, and he's gone. That doesn't seem to be the case. Instead, he hangs out with Adam and Eve after the sin to the point where I wonder if it was his idea to hide, reminding them of what they've done. The Bible says that he is the accuser of the brethren. The only brethren on the planet at the moment are Adam and Eve. So I'm sure he accused them during that time. I just find it interesting that Satan doesn't flee from sin when we're in sin and he hangs close by. Just let that do that, do with that what you will. But this began a journey. He, he moves them out of the garden, lest they take of the tree of life and live forever. He doesn't want them to live forever because if they do, then they will be eternally separated from him. So in a bizarre way, I've always looked at death as the curse, yet it seems that death is grace because it gave them an opportunity to be redeemed. And he moves them out of the garden, and it begins a journey that we see throughout the next 4,000 years of history of victories and defeats in the lives of the people of God. And, and when they would move in different areas, and they would find themselves in di different moments of defeat. And a lot of what we see in the Old Testament is a physical, okay? 
we see things like they lost their freedom. They lost the Ark of the Covenant at one point. They saw the temple destroyed. They would lose land. They would lose territory. And what would happen all throughout the Old Testament is that when people would be worshiping God, things were good. But when they forgot about God and started worshiping false gods, then God would remove his hand of protection and another power would rise up and usually enslave them. And then they would go, oh, this is not good. Maybe we should worship God. And then they would worship God and God would turn things back up, restoring what was lost. For 4,000 years, we see them losing and then God restoring. Losing and God restoring. When we talk about victory in the Old Testament, it typically has to do with a military-type mentality because they were at war for thousands of years. They would have moments of peace, and then they would be back at war, back and forth. And what we see in those things that... Sorry, I got, I got turned around here. Um, we see the passages all throughout the Scripture about how the battle belongs to the Lord, right? We see that in Jericho. We see it. God reminds his people over and over and over again, when you come out, I am the God who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I led you out. I brought you out. I gave you Jericho. I gave you Canaan. It was my battle. You know, the Israelites never won a single battle on their own. Anytime they went to war with their own ideas, they lost and were slaughtered. Because what was happening in the Old Testament, every single time they went to battle, they were facing an enemy they cannot defeat. They were too big, too strong, too mighty in number, and that's what made it a miracle. And that's why God repeatedly says, it's my battle. And I want you to know today that we may not be in a physical conflict, but there's a battle brewing inside of all of us, an internal struggle that we deal with. We all battle things. Whatever that battle is, I don't know. It might be depression. could be anxiety. You could be battling with lust. You could be battling with suicidal thoughts. You could be battling addiction. You could be battling all sorts of things. But I'm here to tell you today, children of God, the battle belongs to the Lord. In fact, all battles belong to the Lord. There isn't a battle out there that doesn't belong to him. If you are called according to his purpose, then that's his battle. And the reason we, you got to understand, we know, we know, whatever that thing is in you and in me, I know I can't beat it. I've tried. I've tried. You try to have enough willpower, you try to have enough strength, you try to do all those things, but at the end of the day, I can't beat it. It is only through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ that we can defeat anything. And for 4,000 years, 
This was the story of the Israelite people. Victories and defeats. Victory and defeat. Until about 2,000 years ago, a young virgin girl gives birth to a Messiah in a barn in Bethlehem. And peace had now come. The Prince of Peace stepped onto the planet and begins to restore everything back that was lost. Now, I don't have time today to talk about the life of Christ, the 33 years, which we don't have a whole lot in the first 30, but we've got a lot in the last three. As John said at the end of the book of John, if we talked about everything he did, the whole world couldn't contain it. I don't have time to talk about that, but we will talk about the fact that for his life, he was perfect. Perfect in every way, without blemish, without flaw, never sinned. It is 9.56 in the morning I have been awake for two hours and 56 minutes. I don't know if I've made it this far yet. But he went his entire life tempted in every way any of us could ever be tempted. And yet was without sin. He lived a perfect life. And he taught us so many things about the Father And in his teachings and in his ministry on earth, what we see is the beginning of the restoration. We see him start restoring the things that were lost because of sin. And if you go back and you look, it was disease and death that entered the world through Adam and Eve. And it is Jesus who walks up and begins healing people, restoring them back to better than they were before. He comes and people had shame and guilt, like Mary Magdalene or Zacchaeus, who hides up in a tree. And he says, no, no, I'm coming to your house today. You are no longer outcast. You are no longer shamed. I'm coming to your house, and we're going to have dinner to show that we are at peace. He said, People who were enslaved to sin. And at the moment, they were enslaved to the Romans. And he comes and he says, I come to set you free. And if the Son sets you free, then you're free indeed. He went from shame to acceptance and then death. Well, death has always been permanent until Jesus kind of rolls around. And he begins to reverse death. Lazarus, come on out. Little girl, rise. Restoring things that were lost. That's been the gospel and the message of the Father for the entirety of the Scripture. Everything that was lost in the garden, he's restoring back through Jesus. And the ultimate victory comes at the cross, where he dies and takes my place. 
and restores us to right standing with God. Now, one thing that I think that we do, and I want us to kind of take an understanding of today, and I want you to hear my heart in this, because you could twist this and make it something that's not. But like Victor always says, wait to the end before you throw the stones, and then throw them at him in the parking lot. We talk a lot about the life of the man, Jesus. Of his grace, of his compassion, of his mercy, how he was the suffering servant, how in every aspect he welcomed those who were the outcasts. He's not a military leader. You see, that's why the, the Jews of the day had such an issue with him, because the restoration of all things had always been military. They were so used to when they were enslaved that God would raise them back up. And when he came and he starts reversing things that were lost, but it's not physical things that were lost. It was spiritual things that were lost. And so when he sees that and the people see that, they're like, this isn't what I wanted. It's not the idea of what I had in this whole thing. But we talk about him and how he was so compassionate and he was merciful and gracious And even in his death, was silent. And I think sometimes we get this, this false mentality of a weak Jesus who just kind of lets things happen. Understand today that the God I serve is not the beaten, defeated Jew of the cross, but a risen, glorified Savior who demolished everything that ever stood in his way. The Bible says that he went and he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He didn't ask Satan for anything. He took it. In his authority, he has authority over all things. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the epitome of everything God ever designed to destroy anything that would ever hinder you from being who he's called you to be. He took dominion. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is nothing beyond him. He is victorious in every aspect. That is the God we serve. In fact, his best friend, John, right? We look at John and his, John the Beloved. John hung out with Jesus for three years. John was the only apostle who saw him die at the cross. And at that moment, they were so close that Jesus gives the care of his mother to John, not to his own brothers. He gives the care of his own mother to John. John and Jesus are close. And John saw him die. And John saw him after he resurrected, doing things he, no man should be able to do. He's popping into rooms, walking through walls, 
doing things that people aren't supposed to be able to do. Plus, he saw him die, and now he's not dead. John sees him ascend into heaven. But years later, when John sees Jesus in the Revelation, and he sees him in his glorified form, in who he truly is, the Bible says that John fell as if dead. In other words, when he sees Jesus, his best friend, he's like, boom, out. The Bible says earth and sky flee from his presence. Out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword, which is the word of God. He is supreme over all things. I'm going to skip this. First Corinthians says it this way. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians says it this way, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Write this down. I thought this was a, it's not my, I wish this was my quote, but it's not. You see, the sick need a doctor, but the dead need a savior. When sin entered the world, death came with it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, that's what I've earned. I am, you are dead in your trespasses. We see that in your transgressions. We see those phrases. Paul talks a lot about how we were dead. And if I'm dead, I don't need a doctor. I need a savior. I need somebody that can restore and reverse death and bring it back to life. The death of Christ was not only a pardon, it also manifested might. It not only canceled a debt, It was a glorious triumph. But the question then is, is that how we live? There's there's a scene in uh, the movie Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey where he's trying to get out of going to court And he decides the best way to do that is to beat himself because he can't lie. So he just beats himself in the bathroom. 
And it's a, it's a hilarious scene where he's punched himself in the face and running into walls and doing everything he can, ripping his own clothes. And a guy comes in and he goes, what are you doing? He goes, I'm kicking my own butt. Do you mind? That's what this week has been like for me. Preparing for this, it's kicking my own tail the whole time. Because I realize when we're studying this, we say all kinds of really cool churchy things. We say things like, the battle belongs to the Lord. We say things like, I'm going to see a victory. We say that he is healer. We say that he has accomplished everything on the cross. And we say that he is victorious in our lives. And yet, we also say things like, all we can do now is pray. I just can't beat this thing. It's just the way things are. My dad was an alcoholic, and I guess I am too. We talk about all these things, but do we live it? Is that our experience? Is that our life today? I feel like Many times, God has paid a price for us, gave us victory over anything, yet we walk and live in defeat. God has brought you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he says the kingdom is here. It's now. You live in it. You operate in it. And you move in it now. You are in the promised land. But so often I think we still live like we're slaves in Egypt. It reminds me of back in the day when people would do something. And they, and they would walk down the streets beating themselves. Shame. 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 Forgetting the character of God. If that's you today, understand that God loves you and that every battle is his and that he will do everything he can to restore the things that were taken from you. Look at the life of Job. If you look at Job's life, he lost everything. But what did God do? Restored it and doubled it. First John says, for every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. How do we win? How do we win? We believe. We believe that he's done it. We believe that it's accomplished. We believe him when he said, it is finished, that it's done. We believe it, and we move forward in that. Colossians says, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life. Because you trusted the mighty power of God 
who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rules and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Every demonic attack, everything the enemy had ever planned for your life, everything that it was the desire of the enemy to squash you out, he canceled on the cross. The Bible says that he nailed it to the cross and made a public spectacle of it. This is the same Jesus who walked into captivity, whatever that means, and set it free. Paul says, what does he ascended, but that he also descended into the depths and demolished every principality and power on the earth and above the earth and under the earth. Wherever it is, it's covered. And he gives you the authority to walk in the victory. But we don't. I don't. I get wrapped up in all this stuff. So, so how do we move forward? I think a good way, and I've talked about this many times, God is very big on remembering. And so sometimes we just need to be reminded of who we are. And so I'm not going to give you any more of my words. I'm going to let you read it straight from the scripture with me. And it's from my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. And if you were to say, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I don't know. Maybe John, maybe Genesis. Jude's only one page. That one's pretty good. Um, Ephesians. But if you give me a chapter, I'm going here every time. And it's Romans chapter 8. So now... There is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Now, the, question, the first question is, do you belong to Jesus Christ? And if you belong to Jesus Christ, there is no more, no condemnation. No condemnation. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law will be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about the things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. 
For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you, you, children of God, you, if you're awake, you, say I, I, but I am not controlled by your sinful nature. Controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of God living in them, they don't belong to him anyways. Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead lives in who? He lives in me. He lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal body by the same Spirit living within you. So because of all that, brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? So if God is for us, who can ever be against us? God is for you, children of God. He is for you. And if he is for you, who can be against you? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. The God of the universe, who has authority over all things, who at his own word created everything, stands at the right hand of the Father, pleading on my behalf. So can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. You see, you're going to have problems. The Lord never said, it's going to be easy. But what he did say is I'm with you. 
He never promised an easy life. He promised an abundant life. Look at the life of the apostles. Was it easy? No. They spent most of their time in prison. All of them were killed except for John, and they tried with him. They boiled him in oil. They did everything they could to kill the guy. That's not an easy life. But it was abundant. He came to give life and life more abundant. He came so you could walk in victory today. Not tomorrow. Not after you die. Not after he returns. Today. So yes, we're going to have problems. But despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Not death or life, angels or demons, not our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the power of hell itself can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing out there that is too big for our God. He gives us victory. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his. He accomplished it. He did the work. So the question I have for you this morning, are there still areas in your life where you are living in defeat? I want you to think about that. And while you're thinking about it, I want you to go ahead and just bow your head, close your eyes, and I want you to really seek what the Lord is saying to you in this moment. What is the Spirit of God saying to you?